Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys, a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Caitlin Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Naomi Kanakia. You'll know Naomi as the author of Enter Title Here and We Are Totally Normal, as well as her most recent book, The Cynical Writer's Guide to the Publishing Industry. She also blogs at thewaronloneliness.com. Welcome to the show, Naomi. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So this is a very exciting episode for me because you read the book for this podcast. You yeah. blitzed through it and I am so excited. What's your relationship to Little Women? Obviously you're new to it, but prior to reading it just now. I would say I did not have any relationship to it. The year that the movie, the Greta Gerwig movie came out, I was seeing lots of movies and theaters that year, but I was also really, really stressed out. And so I was walking out of a lot of movies. So I started seeing the movie and I was like, yeah, this is good. But I was just not feeling it. Oh, and I also had one of those movie passes. So it was like, I didn't pay for this movie ticket. I walked out of a lot of very fine movies that year that people like. I also walked out of Academy Award winner, The Favorite. And I was like, oh man, the music in this movie. Anyway, and so I was kind of trepidatious to get back into it. But I listened to the audiobook and I really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, that's good. I'm glad I finally checked this off the list. What was your immediate impression reading it for the first time? Well, I guess my immediate impression is I write YA, you write YA, I map little women onto YA, but YA books end with the start of adulthood. There's nobody getting married in YA books. And so I was surprised that it follows the little women into the beginning of their adult lives. It ends with them all married. They all get married or die. So that was kind of surprising. It was originally written in two parts. So she wrote Little Women. It kind of ends with the, the first volume. Yeah. Um, it was such a smash that she was compelled to write a sequel that was published at least in the UK, under the title Good Wives, <laughs> in which they all get married. And she was really resentful of the pressure she felt she was under from readers to ensure that all of her characters were married off. She especially did some kind of jujitsu with Joe because she just did not want Joe and Lori to get married under any circumstances. That was extremely important to her. You were sending me some DMs about Professor Bear this morning. <laughs> yeah, that didn't make any sense. Come on, Professor Bear, this is, just, this is just nonsense. Yeah, she was very deliberately trolling the readers. She for sure had a thing for older literary intellectual gentlemen, but she was also trolling her 10-year-old readers. And <laughs> that really comes through very clearly. It's sort of a deeply unsatisfying ending. But today we're talking about chapter six, so we don't need to get yes. into the ending too much. I want to ask you, next question which March sister do you identify with most strongly? And for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. I think Amy. I like, I like Amy. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, I would also like to go to Paris and be a member of high society and at least think about being really shallow for a while. No, that totally tracks with you. I think Amy would definitely be the type to write the cynical painter's guide to <laughs> breaking into the industry. <laughs> I was sad when at some point Amy's like, oh, you're like, you know, I'm just not talented enough to like be an artist. I'm like, don't buy it to that, Amy. Like, it's okay. You could just get by with your bad art. It's fine. But I guess that's against the ethos of Little Women, right? Little Women is all about rigorous self-honesty. At some point, Lori 
tries to compose an opera and like you just know not gonna work it's not gonna work at some point he's like yeah this you know this is stupid these characters are really given opportunities to fail and fall back on themselves and pursue different paths which is really interesting and something we we don't often see a lot in in literature for this demographic necessarily yeah so there's that shot in the Greta Gerwig movie where we see Amy painting in Paris and she's made a fine very realistic painting the camera bumps over to this Monet impressionistic <laughs> painting and you just get the sense this movement has completely passed Amy by she is behind the times and you know it, and it's sad it's it's interesting to disestablish a character's dreams like that at the outset you're a total amy you are radically honest you speak the truth mm-hmm. you are so much larger than life that that absolutely 100,000% tracks for you so there's not a lot of amy in this chapter though no. it's more it's more beth at the beginning of the book i was like i'll never be able to keep these sisters apart like in my <laughs> in my version they were all voiced by different actresses, which I feel like almost was bad because they, they, they removed all the speech tags. This chapter is like where I started to differentiate them a little bit, which obviously by the end of the book, I had them all straight. Even, yeah. you know, within <laughs> 10 or 15 chapters, I had them all straight. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, I feel like she's the baby. And tragedy befalls Beth, but not quite yet. What happens in chapter six, Beth finds the palace beautiful? My understanding is that so we start to get more introduced to Laurie's home life with his granddad, and we get a snatch of him talking about Laurie hanging out with the March sisters and what's going on with them. And then he invites somebody over to play the piano, and Beth comes over, even though she's scared of men, essentially. I mean, she's scared of everybody, but she's definitely scared of men and old men. And she comes over and plays the piano. And then he's like, oh, you sound so good. He's like, Laurie, thank God has given up the piano, you know, because being and loving the piano is just, it's totally gay. Uh, (laughs) But it's great when a woman loves the piano. So then he delivers the piano to Beth and Beth is really, really happy because I guess she hasn't had a nice piano. And then she goes over and thanks him and isn't afraid of him anymore. Yes, that's pretty much it. So it's a beautiful and moving chapter for Beth, but very much at the expense of Lori. So let's get into it. What I'm really aiming to get into is a topic that I think has been really overlooked in scholarship about and writing about Little Women, which is the trans, not even subtext. It's very, very overt in places. And what little understanding exists of that subtext, it's a kind of understanding of Joe as transmasculine. I think people are still warming up to the notion that Laurie is dealing with this too. And I think that comes through very, very clearly in this chapter, the ramifications of that for him. I was just recording an episode with our mutual pal, L. Mm-hmm. There were parts of that episode where we were just clutching our faces, speechless about how <laughs> overt the trans stuff was so I don't know though I, I don't yeah. really think I, I like, cannot imagine someone who's not trans reading Laurie that way you know really? like yeah okay yeah, yeah like someone who's not we, trans there's very few English professors who are trans so like it's not surprising to me that he hasn't been read that way obviously in 19th century literature there's a lot more of women dressing up as men enacting maleness 
Little Women is not even a particularly strong example, right? Because there's no point where Joe actually impersonates a man. Um, in that play, in the play in the second chapter, she... Yeah, yeah that's but, true. But there's no part where she has put on men's clothes and go out and do stuff. It's just very, very... It's not that common to have heroes or male protagonists in 19th century novels that don't embody male virtues. So by that standard, Laurie definitely stands out. I'm not surprised he's not read as trans. It's interesting that you bring up that in 19th century literature, there was more female to male cross-dressing than the reverse. But there actually is a Louisa May Alcott short story that is about a young boy who escapes from an abusive home by disguising himself as a woman and sort of introducing an older man. It takes place in this carriage ride and it's narrated from the older gentleman's point of view. So all he sees is this beautiful young woman who comes into the carriage and she's had such a hard time and somebody's after her and, and he simply must guard her from who's after her, right? And, <laughs> yeah, nice. and this, yeah, and this older gentleman is very protective. He's like, she's beautiful, I want to kiss her. And they fall asleep sitting up in the carriage. He wakes up the next morning, there's this boy sitting across from him, like, surprise! <laughs> so... Louisa May Alcott was on the level as far as that was concerned. But yeah, I agree. I think, you know, obviously Joe opens this book saying, I cannot get over my disappointment in not being a boy and hammers that home every chance she gets. With Laurie, I think it's much more subtle. I think also there's a tendency to write off Laurie. I have a good friend whose who's take on Little Women was, with Laurie, I'm always like, why are you here? This is... <laughs> no, what? I think there's a tendency to be like, why is this boy in this story about these sisters? We're going to get in today to the purpose of Lori and what Lori is telling us about the value of womanhood and what it means to want to be a girl. And when it's sad that a person can't have that. So the first thing I want to call attention to is as Lori comes into the March family, one of the things he is most grateful for is Mrs. March's motherly welcome, right? We've learned before that Laurie is an orphan. He doesn't talk a lot about his dad, but he seems to really particularly miss his mother. He's looking out the window at the girls playing in the yard and at Marmy at the table and just really yearning to be a part of that life. What does it mean to Laurie to have this motherly presence in his life again, do you think? That's really striking. I, you know, I would have to say, as an aside, one thing that is weird about Little Women is I would expect it to be a little more racist about Lori. Normally, when good Anglo-American blood is carried off by a fiery Italian, the resulting mixture, the child, partakes of the devil somehow and has that Southern European wildness about them that they have to fight off. You never get that with Lori. It's not part of the description at all. They remark on it a few times. His grandfather's just, although he's kind of loving towards the March women and cries over his dead granddaughter, he's just not very warm towards Lori. Mr. Lawrence is one of the things that really most upsets me about this book. The endless grief over the dead granddaughter, but the disregard for the living grandchild and the not wanting this living grandchild to play the piano. It's very upsetting to me. 
you can tell it's it's getting to Lori. Like, I don't know that any adaptation of Little Women really rehabilitates Mr. Lawrence successfully. You see him warming up toward the marches, but not so much toward Lori. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he and Lori never really, they're never really pals. It's always duty. But that makes sense. He's really troubled by what happened with his son, obviously. You get the sense that something similar would have happened with Lori if he didn't have to constantly remember to not be as stern as he wants to be. Because yeah. he's like, ah. Oh, I've learned something, which is I really don't want Laurie to run off. And that's his only nod towards I'm this person's parent. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's a really interesting take on the dynamic between Mr. Lawrence and Laurie is just not wanting a repetition of what happened with driving his son away. Although Laurie is Italian, we get an explicit acknowledgement. Marmy certainly disapproves of the way that Mr. Lawrence handled the whole situation. We get Meg saying Italians are always nice. We get some very outspoken... <laughs> pro-Italian, which for the time was radical. Also because the book is so Protestant. Everything about the book <laughs> is just so Protestant. You never even imagine you could meet a Catholic in this book, but there's not that overt anti-Catholic bias. Right. Louisa May Alcott, her racial politics were extraordinarily radical for the time, even within her own family. Her home was a stop on the Underground Railroad. She taught people escaping from slavery to read and write. She was incredibly devoted to anti-racist causes, and that certainly comes through, at least in the character of Laurie, and portraying him as someone with an ethnic difference from the Marches, who is wholeheartedly welcome into the story. But Mr. Lawrence remains prickly and never really addresses that or warms to Laurie or has a moment of saying, what I did to your mother and your father was unconscionable. So Laurie is left to kind of seek out this surrogate mother in the form of Marmy, and to really yearn to become a part of the March family. And at this point in the story, it's really like a childlike yearning for playmates. Mm -hmm. Later in the story, I think whether or not Lori would be able to assimilate into the New England of that time would be really dependent on who he married. If he went to Italy and fell in love with a Sicilian woman, then forget it. It's over. He's already not going to be able to access certain communities. He's not going to be able to enter the professions or go to graduate school, become a lawyer or a doctor, enter some of the highest paying jobs. So he really has to marry a quote unquote, for the time, white girl. And so if he marries one of the marches, heir of a very good family. Yes. Yeah. Even if he can bring material wealth to the table, but what he can't bring is whiteness by the standards of the day. It's clear everybody in town regards the marches as super respectable. Yes, absolutely. Just temporarily embarrassed Boston Brahmin was the deal. So Lori, the wealth hasn't really served him well. He's really at home in their shabby house with all these sisters. It's kind of the life he's always longed for. And I think there's a dimension of that, obviously, that I think and you think we see Lori as enjoying this proximity to womanhood, perhaps because he wants to be one. Yeah, I definitely buy it. I'm always kind of reluctant to be like some character in the past is trans, but I definitely see those longings in Lori that I've felt myself. I was really touched by the scene where he joins the club, hiding in the closet, and then he bursts out and is Trying, trying to convince everybody that he belongs there. I'm like, oh, Lori. I know you're making kissy faces. Absolutely, yes, 100%. And that, obviously, the imagery of the closet wouldn't have connoted what it means at the time. But he literally hops out of this hiding place. And it's like, I can be a girl and pretend to be a boy. Yeah. <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> These girls, they take the solitary boy into their midst. 
they're welcoming him into their community. And he finds something very charming in the innocent companionship of these simple hearted girls. So yeah. like innocent is doing a lot of work there. It's saying this is not romantic. He's really enjoying female friendship in a non-romantic, non-sexual way. It's part of what allows Mr. Lawrence to let him continue to do this. He says he can't get into trouble in that little nunnery. Like he <laughs> understands that Lori is not over there to like get laid. I- yeah for the time it was uncommon for boys to marry as teenagers girls like joe and meg were getting married at Mm -hmm. this time but that is not at all a consideration over there they are really just going over there for play right yeah and so that's something very special the marches are so respectable too that a boy can hang around even unchaperoned with the girls and everybody's like oh nothing could possibly happen Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. In a previous chapter, in the chapter where they put on the play, it's noted that no gentlemen are admitted. So even then, there's a very specific and special exception being made for Lori. It's all right there. It's all right on the surface. I mean, now we're getting into the more unfortunate. We've touched on this already, but part of the chapter that makes me really angry, we are told that this is when Mr. Lawrence extends the invitation to Beth to play the piano. And what he says is, the boy neglects his music now, you know, perhaps because when he was alone and solitary and didn't have any friends, the piano was one of the ways he used to cope. And now that he has these friendships, he's playing it less. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Lawrence is glad of that. He says, Laurie was getting too fond of it. As you, <laughs> I love that you were very frank in the beginning. It's too gay for Laurie to play the piano. <laughs> What I find so interesting about late 19th and early 20th century novels is if a woman is involved with the stage in a novel, they're not even like, oh, and she has sex for money. They're like, oh, she is a prostitute. Like, those are the same thing. (laughs) In Bruce, you're reading about Rachel, who's the actress, and then he paid her for sex. There's no idea that some people involved in the stage might be respectable. Yeah. So I definitely understand that it's it certainly can't be a profession for him to yeah. play music. Now, would they have regarded musicians that way or just actresses? I think in Europe, gentle people could play music and be professional musicians, but it still just doesn't really seem like it'd be a respectable thing for someone in Laurie's position. My understanding of how music operated in that era, it was a pastime, it was an entertainment. One of the way people would just use to pass the time and entertain one another was to sing or play music. I was able to read, when I went to the Alcott archives at Harvard last fall, I was able to read May Alcott's journal. And there's this hilarious two-week passage of her journal where she is just living her life to the fullest, having hot girl summer at a beachside resort, surrounded by fawning boys, right? And and telling us every juicy little detail in her journal. Mm -hmm. This is May Alcott, the real life Amy. And there's one thing that I just thought was so funny. There's a boy she's really been flirting with. He sings her a song called Land of the Leal one night when they're around the campfire. And she likes it so much that she asks him to sing it again. And he does. And then she asks him to sing it a third time. And he does. And she said, I had a very pleasant evening. (laughs) There was a role that singing and musicianship played in courtship. It certainly wasn't unheard of for straight men to do it. Yeah, but I think... For him to just 
be yeah. really invested in music would not be. And it's specifically yeah. because his Italian mother was a musician. Yeah. Mr. Lawrence does not want Laurie to wind up like his Italian mother. And there's a racist element to that. There's an anti-Italian element to that. And I think there's also a misogynist or homophobic or transmisogynist, frankly, element to that as well. Mm-hmm. Just not wanting Laurie to be feminine. And yeah. by the same token, letting him run around with What else is he going to do? In 2021, most fathers don't want their sons to be feminine. Yeah. So in the 1860s, and you have very little understanding or you have a folk understanding of how things operate. I'm pretty sure people understood at least that there's, I 100% believe in all places and times, especially places and times where the sexes are segregated more, people go through gay phases. I've had friends who go to Saudi Arabia and they go to Yemen. All the boys are having sex with each other. So I, I believe that they understood that a lot of these texts are underwritten by the idea of a gay phase. I feel like maybe they had the sense of being homosexual was when it all just got out of control. It's just like, what else is he going to do? You know, sure. is he yeah, going to no, be I'm... like, yeah, it's great for you to play the piano. That's going to go really well for you here in Boston. It's understandable why Mr. Lawrence behaves the way he does. I just wish he didn't because it's so heartbreaking. Now my gay grandson isn't touching the piano anymore. So why don't you come oh. over, little girl? I really feel for Lori. Quick sidebar, Lori, for having been in all these single sex environments and having to go to all boys boarding schools and stuff, really does not enjoy the company of boys. No. Does not get along with boys. It gets bullied by boys. They call him Doris. Like, no. That's saying something. That's Yeah. <laughs> but let's briefly get back to Beth. Yeah, we should talk about Beth. Poor Beth. Lori's loss is really Beth's gain. Beth is able to go and play on this beautiful piano and exercise her gifts in an important way. So let's talk about what musicianship means for Beth and what Beth is getting out of it as a very shy person. Someone who's sort of, we might even think of today as being neuroatypical, just insofar as too bashful to go to school even. In the 1933 version, there's a scene where Amy takes Mr. Lawrence aside and says of Beth, she has an infirmity, she's shy. So like it's, <laughs> it's just understood that like Beth is shy to the point of illness. Mm-hmm. So what, what is music doing for Beth? I would imagine it lets her take center stage, lets her entertain her family and stand out, but in a way that she's just used to. I mean, at least a lot of musicians, Especially stand-up comics, for some reason, I've met, uh, who I've met are really shy. That absolutely tracks. It's, it's a way of expressing herself. She doesn't necessarily have to speak aloud or even sing. She's letting her skill do the talking for her and letting that be the first impression that other people have. That's interesting for me. Mr. Lawrence is kind of coy. He's like, why don't, you know, just keep it in tune, you know. And <laughs> Beth is very quick to take him up on the offer and also repays him with this beautiful pair of slippers. And it's the slippers, actually. It's the offer is initially extended to simply come over and use the piano anytime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Beth is so moved by this that she hand embroiders a pair of slippers for Mr. Lawrence. Yeah. Love language gifts. We've been tracking the love languages of the marches. Joe is definitely acts of service. I think Lori is quality of time and Beth is gifts because she wants, <laughs> she wants to mm-hmm. make a beautiful handmade gift for Mr. Lawrence. And he's deeply moved. He's so moved by this that he just gives her the piano just has the piano moved over. He's 
a very isolated person. It's kind of funny yeah. that they go over to his house and he's he's their neighbor. And he's yeah. like, oh yeah, I was friends with your uh, grandfather. You guys haven't, you haven't talked since then. <laughs> Like, yeah, I'm just your neighbor. Like, the last time there was a man around, we we were friends. But, you know, I just haven't spoken to anyone in your family since then. Yeah. And I think that gets into the social dynamics of New England at the time. I mentioned before, there was this group known as the Boston Brahmins, who were mm-hmm. just several very elite, wealthy families who intermarried. There was a lot of cousin marriage. And even like, stepping outside of that circle was frowned mm-hmm. upon. And certainly the Alcotts were not Boston Brahmins. Bronson Alcott, we would, we would probably by today's standards regard Bronson Alcott as mentally ill. He was unable to provide for the family economically or hold a steady job. There were really noble initiatives that he undertook that were successful for a time, but foundered just owing to circumstances or becoming too ambitious. Or in one case, a school that he'd founded that, was, that had been very successful closed after he admitted a Black student and white families began to withdraw their children. He couldn't afford to keep the school running anymore. So I think that's obviously incredibly noble. And it was also the kind of thing that could really get you iced out of those white Brahmin social circles, right? I want to also clarify this phrasing, Boston Brahmin. I recognize that that's- I know what a Boston Brahmin is. Yeah. It's it's, totally fine. (laughs) It's like- Not bother me at all. Okay, yeah. Um, Like, like, just because I'm Indian. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> don't care. Yeah, yeah. And I want to clarify for any listeners: it's a historical term. It's what they're called. Yeah, it's yeah. What they're called. It's like the Cabots and the yeah. Lodges and all yeah. these rich ass yeah. Boston people. Yeah, there was in fact a Boston Brahmin Lawrence family, and I'm sure that the usage of the name Lawrence is a nod to that. So, as far mm-hmm. as I was friends with your grandfather, and I just haven't spoken to any of you since. That's so weird. Like, <laughs> there's a reason for that, and it has something to do with. Mr. March losing all the family's money, I'm sure. And the Marches being cast into this life of genteel poverty, Mm -hmm. right? Mr. Lawrence has paid for his snobbery by becoming increasingly isolated and disjointed and unable to relate to people. And I think that's something that Lou Alcott does a really good job of illustrating here is how that kind of behavior isn't just cruel to other people. It can have a corrosive inward effect. Yeah. We're going really hard on Mr. Lawrence here. I mean, (laughs) he didn't bother me to nearly the same degree. He's certainly not the best of the taking in an orphan child people, but he's better than Betsy Trotwood, who's the <laughs> aunt in David Copperfield. But he's no, I don't feel like these, these strongly negative feelings towards Mr. Lawrence. I, I think I just don't expect anything better from him. There's a lot of hugging. So I love this ranking of adoptive literary parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's yeah. kind of in the middle. I find it hard to feel too sorry for Laurie because I feel like even if he is trans and like has those feelings, kind of all works out for him especially that childhood with the marches that really seems to work for him and obviously then in adulthood there's kind of a grasping but he does the best he can so Mm -hmm. things things work out (laughs) that's your like aim low and don't be disappointed it's your (laughs) that's when it comes to mr lawrence no i i am being too hard on him i'm definitely projecting a lot onto him i recognize that I think you're onto something though, as far as what really redeems Lori and brings him joy is being welcomed into this family. Lou Alcott took this notion of family as something that transcends blood ties and living in a communal environment and supporting one another 
in a sense, I think Joe truly does think of Lori as another sister and relates to Lori as she relates to her other sisters, which is something interesting. That may have something to do with her inability to see their connection as romantic, I think, later on in the book. She's like, Lori is my boy. And in that context, she almost means like my son. I couldn't possibly think of him as a husband or a romantic partner. That's just wild to me. Yeah, I mean, like very hard to imagine the two of them having sex. (laughs) They could definitely get married and live together. I don't think there'd be that passion in their relationship. I will say there's one person on AO3 who cracked the code. Shout out to you. You know who you are. One person managed to make it work. but (laughs) Make make what work? Joe and Lori fucker. Oh, like in a a fan fiction. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was, yeah. So, yeah. Shout out to you. You know who you are. But yeah, I, I very much, I very much agree. I don't, I don't see a romantic future necessarily for them. I understand why Lori winds up there insofar as marrying into this family is kind of the only way to continue being a yeah. part of it. From Lori's perspective, it makes perfect sense. Marrying Joe is just really natural. Maybe being trans myself. And if we say that we go with that mindset for Lori, you become a lot more dysphoric the more you're forced into like traditional masculine gender roles. Nothing does that like courting straight women. So I just feel like Lori marrying someone else outside the March family and becoming paterfamilias, having to just be the man of the house, I don't see that appealing. So I think he really wants to like continue in this kind of sexless March environment for as long as possible. And marrying Joe makes perfect sense. Yeah, and and now that I'm thinking about it, one of the things we learned about grown-up Lori when he's at college is that he has strings of very brief flirtations with women, but never anything serious. Yeah. Which is telling, I think. Yeah. Uh, Joe sort of uses that as like, well, you can't commit, you're not serious about this, and you'll be over it soon. (laughs) But it's like, buddy, I I don't know if you have the correct read on the situation here. I don't know. I feel like there's something to it that Joe and Laurie wouldn't make the best match. No, Um, I I agree. Obviously, everything's colored by the text where she actually does marry a man. If she just ended it and she wasn't married, we'd be like, oh yeah, clearly like that makes sense. Like, I definitely understand the part though, though, where she's like, I'm just, at least later in the book where she's like, I'm really lonely. Maybe if Laurie came and asked me again, I would say yes, just because I'm lonely. I understand that too. For both of them, there's not really a path forward. It's hard to envision the life they want aside from a bohemian social scene, but then at heart, they're not really bohemians. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because she did write sequels to Little Women. There was Little Men and Joe's Boys, and I have not read either of those, the title of this podcast, for a reason, right? I also think it's very funny. She was asked to write a children's book for girls, and she said, I never liked girls or knew many. At this point, she'd do anything for a paycheck, so she did. And it's interesting that when she had to write sequels, but had more financial and creative latitude, she was like, all right, men, boys. Like, (laughs) the focus changed. But so again, I haven't read them. I have read one chapter. And the peak we get into Joe's future is that Joe has founded this boys' school. There are some girls studying there. And Lori has founded a college right next to the boys' school, Lawrence College and is running it. And so essentially what happens is Joe and Lori are living on this big commune campus. Compounds, yeah. With with their respective spouses, but are still best friends. Chilling all the time. fun and putting on plays and they have cute nicknames for each other. That seems like it works. Yeah. Yeah. 
Lou got them to where she wanted them to be. Imagining them apart is really sad. Like, no, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's important that they come back to one another and are on good terms when the novel ends. Joe even goes so far as to name one of her kids after Lori. <laughs> we get Teddy Bear, which is fast, fascinatingly is like well before the invention of the actual Teddy Bear. This, this kid has just happened to be named Teddy Bear. They find their way back to one another in this very platonic sense, which I think something that Lou Alcott really yearned for was platonic companionship with men for reasons that we can read into or project onto. But that was something that she very clearly wanted. And she was not interested in certainly heterosexual marriage at all. It's so complicated. And the existence of Bear really throws a wrench into things. We're getting far away from chapter six here. By, yeah, by the end Beth of chapter six, and they're Beth still, and yeah. Lauren and Mr. Lawrence. I feel bad. I feel like we've, that we've shortchanged Beth. What is there to say? I mean, does anyone come on your show and it's like, I'm Beth? That's me. That's Actually, the March sister I am. Yeah, no, my, my friend Jaime and I just, we just released that episode and Jaime was like, I am a total Beth, really identifying with like the gentleness and the lack of cynicism of Beth and wanting to return to that childlike quality. We spent a lot of time talking about the futures of these characters and Beth does not get a future in a very real sense. Has a sense in the book that she's not meant to grow up, which is heartbreaking. And some of this was Lou Alcott attempting to reckon with the death of her own sister, right? Mm -hmm. And process that. It's worth noting that Little Women was originally, in the single volume Little Women, that she originally wrote, Beth is ill and recovers and lives. And it's only in the second book that maybe Lou had the emotional space to reckon with death in a different way and makes Beth very at peace with dying. Mm -hmm. is, is unable to imagine a future for Beth in part because the real Beth did not get to have that, which is very upsetting. Some adaptations do have Beth just miraculously live. The middle grade adaptations tend to go with miraculous recovery. I don't know how to feel about that. I think. It is what it is. Do you, have, do you have thoughts on that kind of interpretation? No amount of people actually dying in Little Women is going to make the book into a place where it feels like death happens. Mm. Like, nothing is going to make Little Women seem dark. So yeah, if she doesn't die, that's kind of halfway what you expect to happen. And then, in, in, as you mentioned, in the first volume, she doesn't. I kept expecting the dad to die in the war, but he doesn't. That is clearly a traditional narrative standpoint, that's clearly the next thing you do is kill him off. But now he comes back and it really tones down the stakes, but it's fine. That's in part due to Bronson Alcott, Lou's father, never fought before, never went to war, was either too old or too infirm to fight. Of the Alcotts, the only family member to serve was Lou. She went to serve as a nurse in a Civil War hospital and actually did almost die, contracted a terrible, terrible fever in the hospital and was sent home, I think, with the understanding that she might die in the company of loved ones. She did recover, but not without essentially developing a chronic illness from the prehistoric medical treatment. These were the days when they're like, oh, no, you have a fever? Drink mercury. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you have mercury poisoning? Smoke opium. <laughs> <laughs> so it really it created... She had health problems. She died very young. As far as nearly dying in the war and then developing a chronic illness that takes you early, those are elements of Mr. March's life and Beth's life that were Lou's own and which come across in that character. Maybe some of Beth's thoughts about death and dying are Lou's own 
and maybe coming to terms with the fact that her lifespan has been shortened. She is not going to be able to live for as long as she. Wow, this is getting bleak. Uh, <laughs> I should have known it would get really real. You were going to get really real about I, this. I mean, you'll cover it in however many weeks you get to it. But I, I liked <laughs> that, that scene when she was were very idealized, peaceful. Yeah, that seems good. It made me really sad. Definitely made me feel feeling. If I was adapting this, this wouldn't happen. In terms of conventional modern day middle grade narrative, dropping the death of a little sibling in the middle of the book and going on, it seems like an insurmountable That's a bit much. Yeah. No. <laughs> for, for that, yeah. You have um, been a wonderful guest. Is there anywhere you'd like people to find you online? Anything you'd like people to check out? Yeah, the people who listen to this podcast have probably most enjoyed my my novel, my latest novel, well, We Are Totally Normal, which you mentioned. And so that would be good if you read it. You don't have to. You can pirate it first just to check it out. <laughs> I don't know. I have to say, I picked up We Are Totally Normal, honestly, just because I thought the cover was beautiful. I did judge the book by its cover. Blitzed through it in a single day and looked Naomi up and was like, your book is astonishing. I'm no. obsessed with it. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not just gassing you up. I did have that visceral immediate yeah. reaction. So I can fully vouch for We Are Totally Normal. For sure, go check that out. And Naomi's blog is also really fascinating. If you're an aspiring writer, she's got lots of very real talk about how to make that happen. So that's worth checking out. What's your Twitter handle? R-A-H-K-A-N. So go follow Naomi at R-A-H-K-A-N on Twitter. I am Peytonology on Twitter. My website is peytonthomas.ca. And I will be appearing on April 23rd at the LA Times Festival of Books on a cool queer love panel with some very cool authors. Adib Quorum is going to be there. Amy Spaulding is moderating and Ashley Woodfolk is also on the panel. So it's nice. going to be great. If you're in the LA area, please come check it out. It'll be my first in-person event <laughs> as an oh, author. Oh, in-person event. Yeah, because of COVID. So exciting. Um, would love to see your smiling faces in the audience. You can go to latimes.com slash FOB to learn more about that. With that, I think we're ready to wrap up. Thank you again so much for coming on the pod, Naomi. It's Thanks. Been absolutely You're welcome. Wonderful. All right. And see you next week when we will be chatting about yeah, chapter seven when Amy is being well, chapter you won't seven. See me. But you will see Amy being a little stunt queen. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>